0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily, how's it going?
1: It's going well, thank you, Ed, on an immediate personal level. I am safe and well on the larger existential species level I'm concerned but you know what's new how are you
0: yeah good uh have really not done very much this week I've mainly been trying to decompress from a hectic hectic yeah hectic let's go with hectic few weeks of work (laughs) uh or few months uh, which has now sort of come to an end, and now we're just down to a sort of a low-level grind that is uh, what work is the rest of the time, but it's much more manageable. Uh, so it's been just kind of a nice, quiet, more or less uneventful week for me, which is, you know, quite nice. <laughs> it's been a stressful couple of years uh, for everyone, and so like having a week where not very much seems to happen uh, can be quite a nice relief.
1: Oh, jeez, tell me about it. I love a I love a week with a whole bunch of nothing just stuffed mm. through with sweet FA.
0: Yes, and something that I think is also reflected in the news for this week, where <laughs> there wasn't a huge amount that kind of really kicked off, but there were a few things that uh, you and I thought would be fun to talk about. Um, the closest thing to an actual news story, I think, was Patty Jenkins talking at uh, CinemaCon about... The, her experience releasing wonder woman 1984 and talking about how she found it to be heartbreaking that the movie had to go on to hbo max and even though she you know renegotiated her contract and and got paid out uh, a, a decent amount of money for it you know she didn't lose any money from it going to streaming instead of playing exclusively in theaters and she has signed on to direct the third one. So things worked out personally for her. She was mainly talking about how she likes to make stories for the big screen and the disruption uh, that the coronavirus caused on the actual distribution last year, uh, obviously hit a lot of movies quite hard and is still causing kind of like chaos at the box office with the, the Delta variant running rampant. Um, but I thought that was quite interesting hearing someone talk about that and offering something of a counterpoint to you know what we have heard about scarlett johansson and her lawsuit against disney where like her experience was decidedly not as uh amiable uh in terms of contracts and feeling like she was uh, done over by the uh, the corporate overlords over there
1: it is a weird one isn't it because as much as oh. i am someone who really does believe in the power and magic of a big screen experience. I'm also someone who's quite happy to, I don't know, stay at home in order to protect myself and other people. And I don't know how comfortable I'll feel going into a cinema during the winter months. I think it's been different, particularly obviously hello here from the UK where, um, very personally, um, I think I'm still within the kind of golden window of my vaccine Uh, efficacy but Mm. the general trend seems to be that that wanes which is fun but it's also a bit like the AV club article about it made the point quite saltily and amusingly that Patty Jenkins is very much preaching to the choir Um, Mm. because obviously this is all of the owners of, of cinemas and the people who benefit from screens being open And I would like just once for like Jenkins or Villeneuve or anyone like that who claim to love big screen experiences so much, actually, I don't know, like support the workers and point out that Cineworld's treatment of its workers was horrendous (laughs) through the pandemic and swathes of chains throughout the US. Because what if the, you know, cinema's, Haven't been fantastically profitable, and they really are pushing down on their workers and exploiting them as much as they can. In terms of, uh, you know, the people who you are most likely to meet at a cinema are probably making like minimum wage. So, I'd like to see more pragmatic support of the big screen experience instead of this kind of wishy washy, oh, I just want it there and the magic. Which I realise makes me sound like an absolute killjoy. But despite all of my uh, arty-farty leanings, Ed, at heart, I am, of course, a filthy little socialist. So <laughs> there are ways that you can help the big screen experience and surprise, surprise, it's not actually uh, uh, trying to make people part with their money in one of the worst things we've been through <laughs> on a species level for a while. Um. Anywho. <laughs> who...
0: Yeah, and like when this all kicked off, you know, 18 months ago at this point, and cinemas started closing movies and started, movies started being delayed, I think you and I, and, uh, you know, a bunch of other people said, you know, the best way for this to be handled would be for governments to step in and basically say, yeah, the cinemas are going to close, but we'll cover everyone's costs, or we'll pay everyone to stay home until this thing gets under control. And,. By and large, that didn't really happen. I mean, it happened in like an abstract way over here with like the enhanced unemployment benefits or with the uh, checks that, you know, people got cut on a couple of those big um, relief bills that got passed. But for the most part, it wasn't like super targeted at any one industry for all those things. Um, I think France was a little better because obviously France is like a huge, rich, cinematic history uh, and also creates a load of trash <laughs> but they treat they treat cinema well <laughs> in general and I think like that was like just a super huge missed opportunity there like that's one of the areas where you could have made it super targeted and basically say these you know theaters seem like a place that would be a really difficult would, would struggle to survive if people can't go to see movies there let's just pay everyone to stay home until this is under control but you know there wasn't there didn't seem to be that much of a push from either side there either from the government pushing for that to happen or from studios who would much rather their movies go into theaters because that's where they make more money than on streaming uh, and so you've ended up in this kind of awful situation where the theatrical experience is uh, constantly seemingly being threatened because no one is really taking the steps that would need to be taken to ensure that it remains kind of like healthy going forward
1: wamp and furthermore wamp
0: in other news there were a bunch of trailers that were released this week that uh, certainly two of them i think you and i are reasonably excited about the first of which was spencer the movie about princess diana starring uh, Kristen stewart which uh, is directed by Pablo Lorraine in the second of his cycle of movies about prominent tragic 20th century women being sad in a big house. Um, which uh, I'm excited to see who he picks next. Uh, in that series. Um, but I'm I'm quite excited. Uh, for this, I have no interest in the royal family by and large. Um, and I don't particularly care about Princess Diana beyond the the basic human reaction of like her death was obviously very sad and very tragic and she was clearly a victim of kind of like various forces working against her but beyond that like it's not someone who I I have a particular care and affection for but I am interested to see what Kristen Stewart does in that role and I, I really liked Jackie I really like what Pablo Lorraine does so I'm, I'm quite intrigued to see how this uh, this one winds up
1: I was so ready and willing to just go, ah, oh, this is just going to be complete trash. What a waste of time. And it, I was expecting another retread of Diana with Naomi Watts. Mm. Um, yeah, who Pablo Lorraine will come for next, we wonder. And I watched the trailer and again, it's this sort of the American and non-UK view of Diana like particularly the heavy sort of more American side of it is really bizarre. Like I love you're wrong about uh, with Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall, but I could, mm. I had to stop listening to their mini series on Diana because their sympathy was of course incredibly warranted, but it was also like not saying I agree with this. It's more just well this is the class system of the UK, and just because you are immensely privileged doesn't mean you're not also emotionally impoverished um because mm. that's that's the british way that's the firm so a lot of her kind of like dancing and, and you know focusing on her being a dancer and i mean i'm more interested in the crown because i think elizabeth debicki is perfect casting because i've never yeah. really got Kristen stewart right admittedly i haven't watched personal shopper and uh she's meant to be amazing in that i mm. I, I wasn't a fan of clouds of uh Sils maria um just found her there you know and i think but she is also um at the receiving end of an awful lot i think less so now but you know was at the center of one of the worst kind of um sort of character assassination attempts through the paparazzi and it's interesting seeing her kind of reclaim herself and her personage in, in the press particularly uh a very good takedown of uh donald Trump. But, Mm. so watching this trailer, sorry, all the dancing, all this, and then it gets to the end and she speaks and I nearly dropped my phone. I mean, that accent is eerily good. So Mm. it's that thing again where, you know, we're running into that sort of Oscar baiting territory possibly because, again, it's the idea that like, oh, acting is a transformation and if you have, a control example to set someone against. It's like, oh, that's good acting because they look really like that person rather than necessarily a character or whatever. But you know what? Mm. I think accent work is hugely impressive and I'd be excited to see if she (laughs) holds up, um, you know, throughout. So it was, yeah, it was eerie. And, And yeah, I guess I can't, I'm not really tired of watching women be sad in big houses yet i might i don't know but again spencer oh i just i think because oh i don't know i don't know but yeah i i'll be on the record i was impressed whether i will remain so it's yet to be seen
0: Mm, yeah uh and another movie uh that also features a score by johnny greenwood and uh the, the anagram lovers uh Kristen, Kirsten Dunst, <laughs> um, is uh, Power of the Dog, the new movie by Jane Campion, which stars Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, Benedict Cumberbatch, Cody smith a lot of very good people involved in it, both uh, in front of them and behind the camera. Um, it's got an extremely effective trailer, which is mainly Benedict Cumberbatch whistling over shots of people looking nervous. Um, but honestly, that's all you need for a movie I think when <laughs> when Jane Campion's involved I think you can uh, pretty much guarantee you're going to get something worthwhile based on you know even the the barest of details and yeah I'm just excited to see her making another movie because I think this must be the first feature film she's done since Bright Star obviously she did Top of the Lake but I can't, has she done a feature film in the intervening years other than those TV se- t- uh, mini series
1: no I don't think she has I think she did sort of uh Go to TV to tell the story of Top of the Lake, which the first series mm. I thought was tremendous. The second one I lost me. Um, love Bright Star. Love Jane Campion. So, so excited for this. And I think it's one of those trailers where... Actually, and the Spencer trailer is very good at doing this as well. I feel like it conveys the tone of the film so accurately that I understand mm. what mood I will be in when I'm best suited to watch it because Mm. I think trailers often it's some spectacle or it's certain lines or like little teasing reveals or stuff like that and maybe the best bits but actually I think as long as a trailer conveys to you like on an emotional level and tonally and you're like oh cool I'll see it (laughs) I know like I have no idea what's going on in that trailer but everything is like tense
0: (laughs) Mm. it's very reminiscent of the trailer for a serious man in that regard Mm. where there's not necessarily a huge amount of plot detail given you just get a look at the actors and just a general sense of unease throughout and yeah I'm very excited to see just how uneasy <laughs> that makes me when that movie hits uh, Netflix I think is is putting that one out. Um, hopefully it'll play in theaters and theaters'll be a safe place to see it. but if not, um, I'll just be really excited to check that out when it comes out towards the end of the year. And then finally, and this was the trailer I think most people were excited about because uh, it broke you know various meaningless records about how many people watched the trailer in 24 hours was uh, the trailer for Spider-Man No Way Home. You and I beforehand were trying to remember what the hell (laughs) the subtitle was. We knew it had home in it. Um, Which uh, I was kind of excited by the prospect of seeing Alfred Molina as Doc Ock again because I love Spider-Man 2. I love uh, Alfred Molina. Always excited to see him show up in something and... I I was at least interested in the idea of like of you know this whole multiverse thing and bringing back villains and characters from uh previous iterations of the series but when it happened and watching it I was just kind of like okay um I I just do wonder if there's limits to how much like emotion you can really bring out of what the MCU does where it's so kind of quippy and jokey and um sarcastic that there's like only so much like genuine emotion you can get out of having Alfred Molina show up
1: which is a real shame because in this house we stan Alfred Molina which is one Mm. of the most online things I've said out loud in a while (laughs)
2: um
1: and yeah I I've just completely dropped off with all the I think just because Spider-Man's such a weird one because we've had In our short lifespan thus far, Ed, three different Mm. reboots of Spider-Man. So I get a bit lost and I don't understand why it's something that keeps coming back. I don't know whether now it's going to be almost Bond-like in terms of a franchise. And it's like, who's going to be the next Spider-Man? Just seeing this over and over again. And really it was um, uh, beyond the Spider-Verse that I think managed. I was like, we just pack this up and go home now because they've done it. They've absolutely cracked it. And... Having this multiple uh, spider person approach was really great and managed to be sort of a poking fun at the idea of a franchise, but also really heartening in terms of how representation and empathy are really important. And I think they put that balance together really well. And I haven't watched the this this this, uh, this trailer of this iteration, Tom Holland seems like a, a lovely boy. But I think what I did manage to see was someone on Twitter saying in the with a gif of him like suiting up as, as Spider-Man on the bridge and someone just said, Oh wait, his vans are in there as well with him because the suit completely <laughs> covers and engulfs his shoes as well. It's <laughs> like this is where we've come to where there's a bit there's more thought and creativity that goes into that reaction tweet than than the rest of it and you know how much of it is it smarmy i i miss the charm of the sam raimi very uh because that felt very comic booky and how that mm-hmm. did so well and really did sort of start the the kind of superhero craze um which is still going far too strong 20 years on but what can you do um
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like Spider-Verse did this whole thing so well. And also, you know, there's just a bunch of different avenues now where people can get Spider-Man stories, like you've had two really great uh, PlayStation games where you get to play as Peter Parker in one and Miles Morales in the other, they're both like fantastic to play, and they get across the fun of Spider-Man, which I feel like these more recent MC movies don't, like, it's not like he's constantly swinging around, and you get the sense of the freedom of it, um, um, you can just get that from playing the game, and I don't necessarily feel as if they're, they're doing anything, like, new or particularly revolutionary with the character, which is a shame, because like, I would probably say that Spider-Man was the superior that I liked the most when I was a kid, like, the one that I was the most drawn to, and these ones they each each installment has left me like less and less enthused and i do really just think like ah just make another spider verse and i know they are and that's kind of in the pipeline and will be out in the next couple of years once they've you know broken animation again to to (laughs) kind of make it work um but yeah this one just feels like they're cribbing the interesting ideas from that one but not necessarily in the most the most exciting ways So we'll go on to the main topic for this week, which is uh, TV anthologies. This uh, is inspired by the fact that I recently caught up with the most recent series of Inside Number Nine, the show from Steve Pemberton and Rhys Shearsmith, which has now been running for six seasons, or series, depending on your side of the Atlantic, Uh, and uh, is an anthology series where each episode takes place inside a room. or a house with a number nine on it, and different characters each time. Obviously, uh, and Shearsmith often playing characters, and then they get various big names to kind of pop in and help them out. And it's been a show that I have uh, really enjoyed, and every time it comes back, I'm really excited because you know you're going to get six stories that are different and that go off in different directions. And it's a show that kind of really delights in shocking and surprising you, and. It, to me, uh, is a real highlight of the current vogue for anthology television, which has really been uh, booming in the last 10 years. And so I thought it'd be fun to talk about Inside Number 9 specifically, but also about uh, anthology television shows more generally, the current crop historically. Um, But we'll start with Inside Number 9. Emily, what did you think of the most recent series of of Inside Number Nine and uh, the, the show in general.
1: Mm, so the most recent series I think felt like a very uh to borrow a phrase from the Alternative Comedy Memorial Society, a noble failure. Um <clears throat> because I th- suspect that there was so much emphasis, quite rightly, on COVID protocol that the writing suffered. I don't think mm-hmm. there was a sense of we can really take our time. The ideas with, were, were sort of there, but nothing ever sort of came to a really satisfying, odd fruition, which is what I characterise inside Number Nine by. Yeah. And the comedy writer Jack Bernhardt tweet, uh, tweeted once, that you don't know up until like the very last minute of an episode of Inside Number 9 whether it's a really great one or uh, a less great one, should we say, Mm charitably. And I completely agree with that. So what I do think Inside Number 9 does brilliantly is I genuinely don't know where it's going to go next, and it's one of the shows that I watch most actively, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense, because I am so bad for second screening And I don't think that my attention span is anywhere as good as it used to be. That is one of the benefits of being in a theatre, whether for a live performance or for a film. I love being immersed in something for a good Mm. couple of hours. Um, But I need help. I need assistance to get off my fucking devices. Inside number nine rewards you paying attention to it. So I'm always excited to see it and even though i wasn't keen on this series there's something about that each series and each episode is a chance to press this big reset button again Mm -hmm. i was talking a a little bit earlier about like tone and things like that and inside number nine has for all of you know the fact that they make essentially six short films or six pilots (laughs) series um it actually has this really death author's touch running throughout every single one yeah i think because there's something about keeping you on that little hook of something could get really sinister at any moment Mm -hmm. or it could actually be really moving like there are episodes that are just there was one that was like a sort of slice of life in this working class families uh kind of dealing with their son and their neighbor and it was just like i was like oh god that's just a heart-wrenching bit of kind of (laughs) compassionate observational writing and then Mm -hmm. other ones i think like some of the most terrifying moments of tv ever um, have been from watching inside number nine Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: i think i prefer i prefer the horror and the more sinister ones But that's not to say those aren't shot through with humour. But I think they're just brilliant in coming up with a twist that's really satisfying. So when it doesn't happen, you know, that's a bit disappointing because I have come to expect the unexpected, I guess. (laughs) Um, But overall, I think it's just really great to see a platform that's an opportunity for them to just churn out different ideas that maybe don't work as a series but work really nicely in a simple half hour and there's not many other places that you can find that really so i just i will always appreciate its experimental spirit and just yeah even even when it's a bit stale it's still fresh you know
0: mm, yeah and I think as well, um, I think it was on, maybe they were on Adam Buxton's podcast or something a while ago, um, Sheer Smith and, and Pemberton, where they were talking about how this show was clearly, to them, like something of a reaction to the previous series they did, which was Psychoville, which is a terrific, kind of like hilarious, sometimes very scary horror comedy show that was also like incredibly serialized Mm. like they were telling a long story over two seasons and a a two series and a special and i think they maybe felt a little burned out on that because it was kind of a continuation also of what they'd done the third series of the league of gentlemen which was also kind of like one interconnected story that they were telling and then this was just like okay every week we have to start with a fresh a fresh slate what do we want to do and I could imagine that it's very freeing for them and very uh, exciting and terrifying that they have to kind of come in every year and just come up with six totally new stories. And the experimentation that, that uh, has to provoke just by the very nature of the beast is the thing that kind of keeps bringing me back. And even when, as in this series where I would say... It kind of felt like it was 50-50 good and less good. Um, Again, to be charitable, I I don't necessarily think that there's any episodes where I walked away thinking, like, that was a waste of time. Yeah, never. Maybe the closest was the final episode of this run. Um, Yeah, I
1: think because it got a little...
0: Last Night at the Proms.
1: Yes. So I think that's the first time they've started to be quite overtly political.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's odd because
1: yeah. I don't think they ever really have that. I mean, you can read into not just Inside Number Nine, but their entire body of work. And I think that they are incredibly proud Northerners and mm-hmm. are a rarity in an industry that's dominated by incredibly posh people. Yeah, um, So they do bring a really refreshing take and and it is a different perspective. But I think there's something about Inside Number Nine where I think it's at a slight angle to our universe. You know, it doesn't... Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the same way that, like, League of Gentlemen is so heavily influenced by, like, Hammer Horror and there's kind of a melodrama and a and an absurdity and a grotesqueness to it. Whereas, unfortunately, The Last Night of the Proms was just too rooted in reality for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it tried to do, yeah. it tried to do two different things. And I think it's pulling you in two different directions in that, it, in, in one way, it was kind of meant to be totally fantastical, and then the other it was people that you that you know and uh, you know at certain points a very realistic portrait of a family in the UK today
2: mm-hmm. at
1: this point in history but it was like lads you can't have it in every single which way and i think it was just really on the nose which is not mm-hmm. something i expect from them either but there's something really comforting about two excellent writers having the courage to show you stuff that maybe isn't quite done yet. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh yeah, no, they can write, like not everything's going to be a winner, even if you do have two of the most talented writers from the UK working together. Um, and they are, And they are hilarious. But yeah, that was the one where it's like, but you're right, it wasn't even like a waste of time. It was more just like, it felt like someone shooting a first draft
2: Mm.
1: And I was like, okay, but I don't really think inside number nine is where I go to for my kind of hard hitting messages. It can be, like I said, moving and or scary. But I think yeah, it was just two of our world and inside number nine has to just be slightly hovering above it. It has to be this weird kind of like a photocopy of our world like a cipher that's when I think I enjoy it the most
0: mm. and I think also that episode maybe also felt like them tr- biting off more than they can chew in half an hour oh yeah 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 where the thing that it reminded me of because both are stories about uh Christ coming back into modern day England <laughs> was the Russell T Davis uh series or special I can't remember if it was a series or not um the Second Coming.
1: Yes, with Wait. Christopher Eccleston.
0: Yes, the, their first collaboration before doing Doctor Who a few years later, where he, where Jesus comes back in one day, Manchester, and it's kind of like a passion play, and um, that again was also something that I don't think entirely worked, although we got a really good orbital song out of it,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and but you know that was something that was taking a big swing on a potentially very controversial uh, subject. And doing like a pretty good job of it and taking the time to explore that whereas here the whole idea of like jesus comes back and shows up at this house where this family are watching the last night of the proms and half of them are like massive pro brexiters and the other half are like remainers and there's this tension between them about it and then there's also this tension where one couple like you know the 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 husband is clearly a, a closeted homosexual (laughs) and there's tension about the sex life there and all this sort of stuff like it felt like there was a lot of things going on and like they they didn't quite manage to balance them all in half hour comedy but you you also you know british television can be so staid and small c conservative in what it wants to tackle and big c conservative in a lot of ways um that you can't help but admire them for kind of taking a big swing even if you look at the, the final resort and think yeah this the, the, there was a lot going on here that maybe didn't come together uh so let's uh, in terms of anthology television shows more generally um you know that the anthology format is something that's been with us in television since its earliest days if you look at sort of the television of the 50s and 60s uh, particularly in america it was like a huge part of programming back in those days particularly i think because in the early days of television in the us so much of the production was based out of new york so you had a lot of proximity there to broadway so there were lots of actors and playwrights that maybe looked down on television as something to do for a long time but you could get them to you know show up and do uh, a one-off or there would be interest in adapting a play that was a big hit on broadway and you know be allowing people around the country to see it back when you know it was very difficult for people to travel to New York to go and watch stuff that was playing on Broadway there Uh, and also I think adjacent to that there was also a kind of a golden age for short stories as a um, kind of centerpiece of culture like obviously people still write short stories now but I don't feel like there was as much that you know there were so many like magazines like sci-fi magazines western magazines so many of these things that would print short stories there was always just lots of material so you would often see a show like the twilight zone which obviously was mostly rodster serling just kind of like sitting there and like hammering out stories but he would also like you know take stories from like harlan ellison or whatever and adapt them for television um so there were lots of opportunities for fairly high profile writers to have their work adapted and then over the course of the 20th century i feel like short stories became less of a kind of a thing that people cared about. And so they were. there was less kind of like rabid desire to adapt them and procedurals became more of a dominant form. So there's definitely been a strain of anthology television that has been going on for, for decades, but I feel like it had largely disappeared in American television until... 2011 when you saw the debut of American Horror Story uh, which uh, was kind of a a new evolution of the form at least in terms of my research I I couldn't find other examples of this happening previously where you know you had not just an anthology where each story of each episode was a new story but where each season was kind of its own self-contained story and that seem to be sort of the dam bursting. And since then we've had like dozens and dozens of anthologies, like multiple anthologies per year with high profile people involved. And I think that has been really fascinating to see how like many people have kind of like jumped at that opportunity. And I was just wondering, what do you think has has driven that move towards anthology Uh, you know, in the wake of American Horror Story?
1: Such a good question. I think my hypothesis is that anthology TV manages to hit that very thin slither of the Venn diagram that Hollywood has been trying to get forever, which is giving people something that they know about enough That they trust that they want to see it, but something different enough so it's not the same again and again and again. Mm. I think Ryan Murphy is really great at doing that and finding, you know, uh, finding the real um, emotion in both horror and crime. And I guess that kind of resurgence around the idea of America and maybe looking at itself more as a country in the wake of trump and sort of the i guess because america is still relative to other countries a very young country and it's an iteration of the states that it's kind of catching up with its own culture and it's like oh what Mm -hmm. what have we actually been (laughs) exporting slash (laughs) colonially imposing the past 20 30 years and what's actually been happening at home and so i think there's the big economic drive the rise of streaming services Mm -hmm. who suddenly found the money that a lot of these people didn't have access to i mean now you and i had sort of uh, roll our eyes at the uh independent film to marvel pipeline Mm -hmm. um but you know tv and and anthologies in particular offered really solid steady jobs for directors who you know were kind of coming up through like mumblecore and things like that and i don't think it's a surprise that the duplasses and Swanberg have also dabbled in uh anthologies themselves um easy and what was the other room I forget because it's
0: room 104
1: room 104 that's it because I always joke being like inside number nine room 104 104 that's it because I think they're more adept to telling smaller stories
2: mm, yeah
1: because a lot of people say oh you know it's mumble just really sort of navel gazing and it's like no it's just you know it, it's the necessity of low-budget filmmaking but it also means you can make very You can make quite cheap telly if you have a lot of people who aren't necessarily very (laughs) well-known instead of a few people Mm -hmm. who are very well-known. And you get, you know, again, tell these short little stories. And I think, you know, in the same way that I think humans just really like serialisation. And I think Mm -hmm. there's something about the anthologies that push back a little bit against the sort of binge nature of watching because you can either you know you can you can for example I haven't watched all of easy I've watched a couple of episodes here and there but I've still watched easy do you know what yeah. I mean I, you don't have to watch the entire series to get a sort of satisfaction of a story and I think because you know we are inundated with oh it gets really good after episode 8 and there's 30 of them you're like oh for the love of god I just want something <laughs> I need something that acts faster never mind delayed gratification and with american horror story and american crime story as well i think american horror story i've only watched a few episodes of the first season and it was really fun but it's like full-blown melodrama right and yeah so there's something amazing about seeing something that's really just so camp but reminds me a lot of kind of like the 70s and again hammer horror like it's not in any way subtle and that's quite fun to watch something as bombastic and also let's be honest escapist um mm. because it's another you know balancing out the flavor profile of peak tv there's only so much kind of like incredible tasting menus that you can have sometimes you really just want a burger
0: mm. i think as well the thing that american horror story has in common with inside number nine is i, I haven't seen uh ryan murthy or brad falchik say this in, in an interview or anything but i, I so i'm just assuming but You know, they were coming off of Glee, which was a very long running show that had, you know, had to kind of keep coming up with new stories for the same characters over time. And I think it's fair to say wore out its welcome fairly quickly. And I have to assume there was something very enticing and exciting about the notion of thinking, okay, we only have to come up with 13 episodes worth of story for these characters. And then we can do whatever we want with them. We can kill any of them. We can have the most horrible things happen to them. But then the next year, we start with something anew. We go to a different thing. Suddenly it's in an asylum. Some, suddenly there's a coven, you know. And I think that has to be creatively very invigorating for them. And I think the fact that that, sh- that show, you know, had its, probably its critical um, love in or honeymoon kind of lasted a little bit longer than Glee's not super long. <laughs> I feel like it's now a popular show that doesn't get particularly good reviews, but um certainly I think people seemed to like the over the top like outrageous qualities of that show much more for longer because every time you were tuning in and even if it was the same actors every season or you know like they would reuse different cast members there was just something really Uh, exciting about going in each time and thinking oh man it's like a totally new thing Uh, and that obviously kind of like lends itself to that kind of hits the sweet spot really between like you're saying having something that people know and have an association with but it being novel each time Mm. which I think also is, is one of the things that really drives a lot of the other um anthology series that we've seen where you know Something like Modern Love, which has been on uh, Amazon, where it's you know ad- adapted from like New York Times articles, I think, yeah, you know, about oh, romance, yes. where the whole thing is each episode is inspired by an article, and it's got big stars in. Where you know you have this overarching idea of like, oh, so it's about romance or whatever, and you have the comforting things of big stars, but for the big stars, they get to go in, they get a paycheck, they only have to do a short bit of work. Um, but you know, for audiences, there is this marquee over it that they can associate with with something
1: absolutely it's like again it's i'm kind of on a theme myself today but as i keep saying like tonally and genre wise you know what you're in the mood for but then you get this little bump of novelty and i haven't seen any of modern love but i know it's been pushed quite a bit by amazon and i think to an extent the crown is also an anthology series because mm-hmm. they did make i think you know the brilliant decision of recasting every couple of series to show the passage of time and you know what i i, I will probably watch a series of the crown <laughs> when mm-hmm. when the next uh the next generations of ascend to it which is something that i think just makes total sense for something like the crown but other series have found almost to be sort of the end of them like thinking of skins and glee or like really anything that involves young people if you try and recast and keep it so that you're only dealing with people of the same age i think quite quickly it just runs flat whereas something Mm. like for example dawson's creek where they were all the same all the way through um it was almost like they weren't 16 when it began because they looked anyway um but yeah, because I just, I can't, can't tear myself away from, I just, I have to see Elizabeth Debicki be Princess Diana.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think they have to hire wetter for that one?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I hope, I think they should have done, because did you see Dominic West's hair? Oh my.
0: <laughs> yeah, they should, at the very least, they should have got Andy circus into play's hair. <laughs> we need, we need, we needed some. Technological help with that one.
1: Heck, um, I want I want a version of the Crown where Andy circus plays every single member of the royal family, <laughs> like kind hearts and coronets. It, I I believe in you, Andy. You can do it.
0: Yeah, better that than sort of the Jungle Book movie that no one saw. Aww, shame. Also, it's been interesting seeing that you know you kind of have shows that you know, like the Crown is kind of a pseudo anthology. Fargo, as well, I think, also could be considered. Yeah. a pseudo-anthology even though it's all taking place in the same universe and there's characters who cross over you know at different ages like each one is its own self-contained um you know kind of a like crime epic that they're telling within this world that the cohen brothers created and i think that's yeah that's an interesting thing to see see people how uh, to see how people kind of like take the anthology format and, and kind of like really run with it in their own direction although I do feel like Fargo and to a much greater extent True Detective um, highlight the potential downsides of it because, you know, when we're talking about Inside Number 9, you know, if they make an episode that doesn't click for you, you think, well, there's another one next week. Whereas if you make a season of television that doesn't click with you (laughs) um, or doesn't click with audiences more generally, then... You've, you've wasted like 12 hours of an audience time. And I feel like it's a lot harder to come back from that because even though True Detective came back with the third season, which by all accounts was, uh, and, or by most accounts, some people liked uh, season two, um, but most people didn't. Uh, you it know, came back with a third season that was much more well-liked. And, but by that point, it really felt as if the the steam had just been completely taken out of it. And it doesn't it doesn't necessarily seem as if that show is is going to come back at this point. I really does feel like, you know, the first was such a huge success and was such kind of like a flashpoint that it kind of garnered a lot of goodwill. And then the second season just wasn't what people wanted. And then even though you have that premise of like, oh, you know, the third one's a, a fresh start, you go off in like a totally new direction, new cast or whatever, that ultimately that's not necessarily going to be that enticing if people have spent sort of eight episodes watching a show And just feeling like, uh, ah, I don't really feel like I want to come back to this.
1: That was exactly my experience with Fargo. I loved the first series and was Mm. really excited for the second. And people said how amazing it was. And I felt like I was getting kind of the hype from all angles. And then when I watched it, I just thought, I can't, I cannot stick with this. And I haven't gone back to Fargo. And I wonder, Mm. we're at this point, you know, where various anthologies, you know, we've had some longer running ones thinking about, american horror story but now i wonder if they're sort of running out of steam or like what the kind of next anthology could be
2: Mm.
1: because exactly what you were describing there with fargo and like but but particularly true detective that was a real kind of difficult second album Yeah, because you couldn't the first series everyone just lost their minds over it and i was like okay this is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> every corner of every philosophy party I've, I've not wanted to anyway um so i wonder if it was almost too big because that's the problem everyone wants to follow up but everyone has an idea of what they think it should be and it yeah fell, it fell to that kind of um yeah the shame of that sort of like fan service um so I, it would be interesting to see how much longer like horror story and also crime story because I'm very excited uh, for impeachment. Mm,
2: like, looking, yeah.
1: at, looking at the photos and Monica Lewinsky's comments about it and how involved she was in it, I think this is going to be a remarkable piece of television. And I mm-hmm. think I'm much more a crime story than horror story gal, I think because, Same. you know, like crime story just I there's not many other shows I can think that it's that kind of uh, creative nonfiction, right? Like, <clears throat> it's such an interesting genre. And again, sort of seeing, yeah, sort of like it's biopics on a smaller scale and and being able to lean into stories. And I also think um, this has only just occurred to me because obviously we're on one right now, but I think podcasts have really pushed the... Um, to kind of thirsts of serialised but also true stories and, inter- mm. and interpretations of things that were maybe overlooked or we're just kind of going through a reckoning right now with like generationally I think being able to sort of look back because I remember impeachment at the time it was happening and I was still in primary school <laughs> um, mm. and I remember asking one of my teachers what was going on and they said uh, the president... Uh, said he didn't do something when he did. I was like, oh, okay, that's how you explain it to a child. But growing up in the world shaped by by that. And I think, because I also, I'm just such a fan of Slowburn. And I think Slowburn Mm. does the same sort of thing. You know, scratching at similar stories that Crime Story is. But yeah, I think it's just because Crime Story as well has the room to look from so many different perspectives. Yeah. And I think that's what I find so satisfying about it because it's not just from, you know, a perpetrator or a victim's perspective. It's always going to be like a really gripping ensemble watch. So I hope crime story will carry on for a fair bit longer, but Mm. yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah. And I think the stories that they've, they've focused on as well, they, uh, it's it's just like really exciting that that show really can kind of change things up so drastically from season to season. You know, the the OJ one was like 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 you say it was like a big ensemble. It was telling this this one story from lots of different perspectives, and uh, and it was you know kind. Of, there was no one person that you could necessarily point to and say this is the like the breakout star or the focal point. Whereas, well, the assassination of Gianni Versace, like. There's, there's obviously a lot of people in that show who were doing great work but really and truthfully it was all focused on what's the actor's name Darren Chris no
1: oh yes yes
0: yeah it was like Darren Chris was such the focal point of that and it was very much a character study of of him and his the the, the world as viewed through his eyes and the, the crimes they committed and in in that respect it kind of almost felt like the first one was, was like obviously about a terrible thing that happened, but there was something kind of like quite genial about it. It had like the courtroom setting and, you know, that's a, a very comfy mode of storytelling, whereas um Assassin's Gianni Versace it really did felt like feel like something more in the vein of like American Psycho or Talented Mr. Ripley. Yes. And that's just like such a much steelier kind of storytelling.
2: Mm, by far.
0: Uh, and also you you're talking about um True Detective as well. I think the interesting thing about what's the next anthology is we we already know what the next big anthology is because it's white lotus mm. which had a first season that was a standalone thing was unexpectedly like quite a significant success um for hbo um and so like mike white has basically said yeah we're doing a second one it's going to be different though <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> so uh that i think it'll be interesting to see how that turns out because that does seem to be uh, a weird subgenre of the kind of accidental anthology where the first one is so, such a big hit that they suddenly have to think, oh, okay, uh, well, we kind of wrapped up the story we we're telling, so let's just kind of like slap this title onto another story and call it a day. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I would love Mike White, so I'm excited to see how he, he tackles that particular problem. Hmm. So, we'll go on now to Shot vs. Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy it as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week?
1: I'm going to recommend the chair this week, Ed, uh, which is not just my constant admiration for a very useful piece of furniture, but the 6 by 30 minute, oh, already sold, Sandra O, oh starring, yes, please, carry on, academic comedy drama? Okay. But, I really liked it. I think a lot of people in academia really responded to it as well, uh, both sides of the Atlantic, judging by Twitter. And we follow Sandra O oh as she becomes not only the first woman to head up the English department in her Ivy League-style, very prestigious college, but also the first woman of colour, one of two women of colour on the board, and it just kind of follows her and in her professional and personal life, but the kind of wider context of um, shifting generations of feminism, social movements. And I just thought it was a really well-pitched... And it doesn't try and solve everything, but it does accurately understand the depth of the issues. I think the, the actual students themselves are probably slightly unfairly seen as the kind of uh not so much the greek chorus but just a very sort of like angry mob rather than having sort of too much individuality or characters but i just really dug it i think you know i've extolled my love for wonder boys and i just really enjoy uh incredibly um book smart people being pretty much incompetent in other ways But yeah, did I mention it's six episodes of 30 minutes (laughs) and you can watch it uh, delightfully. And I think it's one of the few things that does slapstick very well. And Holland Taylor's in it. So what more more do you want? What have you got for me this weekend?
0: I am going to recommend a book that I read this week called Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Raiden Keith, which is a book that is... Simultaneously, a kind of like true crime account of a woman named Jean McConville who was disappeared in nineteen seventy three, I believe. Disappeared, of course, in the um, political violence sense of being taken from her home and then no one knowing what happened to her after that point. And using that as the spine through which uh, Raiden Keith kind of explores the troubles in Northern Ireland more broadly. It's kind of a really great rigorous of history it uses the the kind of like events surrounding Jim McConville's disappearance which also ties into you know various figures within the IRA and the Provisional IRA uh, and Sinn Fein and uh, as someone who was a child when the Good Friday agreement was um signed and someone who knew who the IRA were but you know wasn't really informed on the specifics of the situation in northern ireland because again i was a child and you know by you know, when i was sort of t- 11 or 12 it all seemed to be wrapped up so i never kind of like knew much in the specifics i found it to be just like a hugely engrossing look back at history that again has this this very specific personal spine of this woman's disappearance and the, the effect that then had uh on her family and sort of every so often tying it into Things that were happening more broadly in Northern Ireland at that point, and I think it's um, just a really great work of non-fiction writing that I uh, couldn't put down. I read through the, like the last half of it in a single sitting yesterday because I was just like tearing through to kind of like see what more horrible things the British did to the Irish than the Irish did to the British. So that is Say Nothing, which uh, is available from all good bookstores. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me.